Did you know that if you sign up before February 14, you can subscribe to Profit and Loss for just £130 sterling for a whole 12 months? That's a huge 30% discount on our regular subscription rate. Or pay just £230 for two years. Go to profit-loss.com plans and sign up today. Or email info at profit-loss.com for more information to ensure that you never miss out on the latest FX news. Welcome to In the Thick of It, Profit and Loss's weekly podcast with myself, Colin Lambert, Managing Editor of PL. This week, uh, I'm joined for an In the Thick of It special by Guy DeBell, Chairman of the Global Foreign Exchange Committee, and Matt Bogue, who is working on the Secretariat of the GFXC. Um, Guy, recently we had the survey for 2019, um, I guess, Attitudes Towards the Code. Um, this was feeding into the three year review. So, Maybe you start us off by giving us some top-level thoughts on what the survey told us and then um, you know, your expectations around a three-year review. Yeah, I think one of the main outcomes was that the adoption of the code continues to increase um, and that most people who signed the code uh, or signed the statement of commitment, sorry, were making it available through the public registers which yeah. are out there, which is good. Um, uh, the other point I think is that two thirds of the survey respondents thought that the effect of the code on market functioning was either positive or very positive, which is good. Um, most of the remaining third just thought it had no impact. So when wasn't, they thought it was, was, it wasn't negative. No. Yeah. Um, and the other thing I suppose we got was feedback on whether the code needed to change and i think it's worth noting that a fairly large chunk of people thought that no changes were needed to the code which is something we're we're very mindful of in taking forward the three-year review those who did think there were need uh, uh, there was a need for change tended to identify a fairly uh, fairly small subset of areas which mm. were aligned with what we are going to take forward in the three-year review but um, but it, we need to keep in mind that a decently large chunk of people thought that, that there was no need for a, a change in the code. I find that quite surprising in many ways because I mean I think we'll come onto it in, in a little while because there was a pretty high level of dissatisfaction with a, you know, practices around last look pre-hedging markup and cover and deal still wasn't there? Well, I guess cover and deal was more of a disclosures issue. But I mean, yeah. do you think this? I mean. It strikes me if you've still got that many problems with it, then we should be changing the code. Not not necessarily changing it dramatically. And I know you've spoken about this many times before. It's not about changing it dramatically. It's about nuancing it and making sure that it's fit for purpose. Yeah. Doesn't that sort of turn around and say, well, actually, it's not really fit for purpose if we've got that much dissatisfaction? Uh, well, it depends on which way you look at it as whether there's that much dissatisfaction. Glass half empty. Yeah, uh, well, yeah, <laughs> there was more than, uh, more than half didn't think uh, there was a need. So 70% of respondents yeah. said there was no need, uh, no change to the code was needed. But I've got to qualify that. So part of this is around the time uh, because they thought it was too soon was, a de- okay. was, uh, was some chunk of that. Yeah. Not... That it because it didn't need to evolve with the market, mm. and th- we've had some feedback at um, 
some of the recent foreign exchange committees about, well, it was a large exercise to embed uh, the code in our institution. If you go and make changes to it, then that's also going to be a large exercise. Part of my response to that is we aren't proposing making material changes. The feedback makes it clear that there yeah. isn't a need for that. There is some issues in particular areas. Uh, and so the delta of ensuring that you remain compliant with an updated version of the code should not be that large. Another point I'd note is you should, in signing the statement of commitment, you need to be satisfied that you continue to be compliant with the code. So you should have some uh, sense of, you know, your ongoing compliance with it anyway. Um, but it does lead to on those, some of those areas you uh, mentioned earlier around uh, issues like pre-hedging, um, last look, uh, and the like, is that the group, the working groups that are looking at those areas are thinking about whether there is more scope to provide further guidance and leave the principle in the code unchanged. So okay. to explain, or explain this, something along those lines, explain these are the sort of considerations you need to take into account around pre-hedging yeah. rather than necessarily uh, change the language of the principle. And uh, what we certainly want to avoid, or, we, or I, what I don't see any benefit of, sorry, is rehashing all the well-known arguments that we had uh, two or three years ago uh, to land in the same place. We know what those positions are, but there are areas where I think we can provide some guidance as these are the sort of considerations that you might want to, you should be taking into account around things like uh, particularly um, pre-hedging. Yeah, and, and uh, so therefore, will the three-year review when it comes out, do you think that will be what gives impetus for those that think it's too soon to start changing the code? Will, is it? Are you hopeful that the three-year review could maybe then provide some real sort of teeth for people to get, you know, I guess, come up with a decision whether we re, we add the examples or do a little rewrite? Uh, well, no. So we no. We are, we are going to make that uh, call probably in mid year as to whether right. in the middle of this year in June at our next meeting as to what which of those paths we want to go down. And there are the three options: is change the principles. Uh, and the threshold to that is pretty high. Yeah. Um, come up with more examples, but my sense and Matt's worked on this directly is I'm not sure more examples are going to be that helpful because you either write something which is so black or so white that it only tells people what they already know and it doesn't yeah. cover off the 90% of the situation, which is grey. And that's where this sort of guidance or um, whatever comes in, which is to try and tackle some of those greyer areas and say these are the sort of considerations you need to have in mind. We can't necessarily provide you clear-cut uh, guidance in the form of a principle, no, no. but we can give you a sense of these are the sort of things you should be thinking about. And the questions to ask? Yeah. That sort of... Yeah, yeah. absolutely. Yeah. Because, I mean, <clears throat> it does strike me. I mean, if you, if you have too many examples, you end up literally writing something that's black and white. Whereas I think if there's one thing we've learned over the first three years of the code, last look and pre-hedging are not black and white. No. No. Yeah, uh, yeah. I mean, certainly pre-hedging. I mean, people... Yeah. I'd say last look, people have more 
black and white views on it, yes. which are not necessarily the same, uh, as a thing from pre-hedging, where I think I think most people agree that that is just an inherently grey area, yes, yeah. an unavoidably grey area. I can just see you rewriting the um, principle seventeen guidance and then having everybody's opinion flip one hundred and eighty degrees, and you still have the same people disagreeing, yeah, just on something different, on different language. Okay, so um, one other thing I wanted to sort of come back to there was on a statement of commitments. Do you, th- do you think there'll be a push around actually maybe getting more statement of commitments public? Because the one thing that struck me about it was I think there were 36 respondents. If they have a statement of commitment, they use it internally only and don't give it to counterparties or put it on a register. I'm kind of trying to work out what is the point of having that beyond saying this is what we expect you internally to adhere to. Yeah, I'm, I'm, to be honest, don't quite understand the rationale from that because if having gone through that process and having signed it, it's a minimal cost exercise to put it on one of the uh, yeah. public registers. And to be honest, I don't see any downside from doing that and I can only see upside. So I really don't uh, quite understand the rationale for doing that. Um, we are we are still continuing, you know, there is continual growth in the, the number of commit, statement of commitments signed. We uh, The GFXE has made it to the... Uh, to the social media age. And I think we <laughs> tweeted the other day, we, got, we hit it, what, our thousandth statement mm-hmm. of commitment uh, yeah. what earlier this year, I think. Yep. Um, so... I was a little dis. I mean, with all due disrespect to Rafis and Bank, I was a little disappointed with that, that it wasn't the PBOC. Yeah. I thought it could have been quite symbolic about, you know, the coming yeah, market. but the... Um, <laughs> anyway, so that... Uh, so the take-up is uh, continuing. And yeah. one of the other things we spent a fair bit of time talking about is uh one of your favorite areas is uh, buy side adoption mm. and we are still continuing that push um we put out a bunch of material um earlier uh, alongside this stuff uh we just put out about a um i don't know i would describe a primer for buy side adoption okay. frequently asked questions uh it was most a lot of input from buy side firms who have side the code is like these are the issues we come up against how we uh, dealt with them and we are continuing our push to engage directly with the large buy side firms to either uh, get them to sign the statement or commitment or at least get a at worst sorry get a clearer understanding as to what are the issues which are uh, preventing them from from or causing them to decide not to. Yeah. Um, but I think we are getting, we are slowly but continuing to get more traction on mm. buy-side adoption. In the survey, I, I, there's no no knowing whether it's buy-side or not, but I found it interesting. That I think there were three respondents that did not sign this, they won't sign a statement of commitment because of legal and compliance issues, which immediately made me, being a cynic, very suspicious of their um, conduct in the market. Yeah. But, I mean, is buy-side adoption starting to increase my sense looking at the thousand statements commitment is it it is yeah so yes is the answer yeah. to that um we've seen it here in our own market um where in the australian market where we, mm. we are seeing more uh buy side firms adopt that and part of that is the effort of um uh, of matt and, and Stuart simmons who's um, yep. uh who's also on the gfxc who's been uh, on the buy side global buy side group has been doing a lot of work, but 
he, he works for a large buy-side company here in Australia and is, uh, I should say, applying peer pressure. That's probably about right. Well, at least provide uh, leading by example and then yeah. uh, sharing his example with other <laughs> companies, uh, uh, like-minded, uh, similar firms here in Australia. And that's happening elsewhere in the world. And um, I, and I'd say the goal is probably not dissimilar to on the sell side where if we can get a decently large coverage of the very large firms in the market and if we can get something similar on the buy side in terms of those with the large FX activities are, uh, are signing up. Um, and yes, hopefully we would ideally like it to trickle down from there as mm. well. But I think it's important to see that the major market participants are signing up or as I said, understanding why not if they choose not to. Is that, I mean, yeah, from, from the early discussions, or they're probably not early anymore, they've been going on a while, but is there sort of a few common themes that are coming up around why people are slow to adopt on the buy side? Uh, I would say that one of the main reasons is we've just got a lot of else on, and yeah. if FX is not a major part of our business, then it's a fair way down the yeah. list. So if I'm in Europe, uh, then MIFID is sort of one, two, three, whatever on the yes. to-do list yeah. and signing the global code is just yeah. a long way down the priority list. So I think that's that's got a lot to do with it. Mm. And you can explain that it's not um, a large effort for them, but it's still an effort. It, you know, it's not, It's it, we think it's low cost, but it's not zero cost uh, for them to do it. And there are all these other priorities which are just getting in the way and also if FX is not a large part of the business, then it's harder for them to make a call on whatever other internal resources mm. they need to do that. Um, I still think there's some part of it is uh, we weren't the problem, so why do we need to be part of the solution? Uh, I, I think there's a lot. That, I think, is, uh, is decreasing. Because um, then we can make the point, well, we think this is for the good of the market. It's not a major imposition on you. And and in a number of cases, you are becoming a much larger share, a, a participant in the market than may have been a few and, years back. And there are those that would argue that spread, spread an execution around several LPs at the same time, trying to force LPs down a little to a, the line of giving people benchmarks at a lower rate is actually part of the problem. Yeah. That's, that's for another. That's for another more controversial podcast, probably. <laughs> I mean, one other thing that was cited in the uh, survey from last year was the audit trail. Yeah, so, uh, people said one of the challenges of adherence was getting an audit trail. What sort of thing do you think they're talking about in terms of actually, you know, it's, it's guidance, it's principles? Where does the audit trail come in? I'm, I'm a bit bemused by that one. Um, I can understand where that's coming from. If you're if your internal compliance says, if you're going to sign this statement commitment, we have, want to have some way of you being able to demonstrate that and we want an auditable trial, mm. then uh, if I take something like pre-hedging, then it is very difficult to provide a trail which an auditor would be comfortable with. Um, and so I, I, I do get, uh, I, I think I can get where that's coming from. Yeah. And it's a principles-based code, and that doesn't necessarily lend itself to uh, you know a, 
mm. an audit record. I mean, uh, some of the yeah. pr- some of the principal do, but if I take you know if I take uh, pre hedging, then that doesn't obviously lend it to something which is completely aligned with a fairly definitive audit yeah. trail. Because I mean, obviously, if you're if you're if you've embedded the code successfully, then you will have the transparency of action around it. Yeah, which kind of to my thinking should act as your audit trail. But yeah, so you, but, just... so you'll have the relevant information there, but I don't think it's. Uh, and so, if the audit requirement is you have the relevant information there, so that someone could make an assessment whether uh, you've done appropriate, uh, your behaviour has been appropriate, then then you can say yes, that's what yeah. you need from an audit requirement. If, on the other hand, you're saying, your auditor is saying, no, I want to have the evidence to be able to clearly make that assessment yeah. or see that you made that assessment every single trade, that, then that's not going to be there. So I think it partly depends on what your auditor is actually requiring. If they're requiring the evidence that you have the available information to um, the that that's required by the principal versus actually being then saying yes or no, you did, um, you know, you did do that pre-hedging yeah. correctly. When we're not actually saying what sort of correct, you know, you said the principal is not black and white as to what does or does not constitute. I don't see how it can be. No. Given it depends on the size of order, time, yeah, market, everything. That's right. It? But yeah. again, it comes to what yeah. conversation you're having with your internal yeah. auditor. Yeah. I guess it's, I, I, if I remember one of the original problems we had was around it was, well, people saying they were pre-hedging in the last look window, mm. which I think we've kind of solved as an issue. So hopefully that's not going to come back and, and haunt everybody again. No. Um, the other thing I guess on buy-side adoption is, do you think the GFXC can do more around really promoting proportionality? And does, is that maybe an area where we need to look at it and saying, do we need to deliver an explainer on proportionality or even parts of the code, L- allow people to sign the parts of the code? Uh, so on, we have tried to provide a bit of an explainer on proportionality <laughs> and some of the material just put out and that still remains and on. That's certainly very much part of the messaging. Yeah. What we have agreed though that we don't want to do is have a buy-side version of the code and yeah. a corporate version of the code because... And the main reason why we don't want to do that, in my mind at least, is because I don't think I can define the market just doesn't split no. so clearly no. along those lines. Yes, there are firms I can tell you clearly a buy side firm, and then there are firms which are clearly a sell side. But there are a bunch of people who are somewhere along that spectrum in between. Yeah. Uh, and so I, I also would the other point I would say is, in the end, the code isn't all that long. And it doesn't take you too long to work out these ones don't apply to me, I yeah. don't think, um, depending on what your status in the market is. And we do emphasize proportionality, but we're not providing, again, a black and white guide no. as to uh, if you're this, then this is relevant for you. Because in the end, that's going to be up to your assessment of your own business model. So do you think market participants will be open to maybe statement of commitments where a buy-side firm can say, actually, here's my statement of commitment and it is relevant to these principles? But I, said, but I would say, well, if the other principles aren't hmm. relevant, then, I mean, it depends which way you want to look at it. Then if they're irrelevant, then you can sign the whole statement and, yeah. and then the other ones are irrelevant. Yeah, because so, yeah, if they're actually saying that 
the principles I haven't signed up to, I'm acting against the code, mm. and that would be a problem. Whereas if they've yeah. simply said they're not relevant, then there's no harm in saying, yeah. I've adopted the whole code. I mean, because you wouldn't want someone else to say, well, I'm going to sign up to every principle except Principle 17, say, where <laughs> I'm just going to go for it. Uh, I, I, I that's think, not I, quite the space yeah. we want to, we'd want to land in. Halfway through that sentence, I did think about that one, actually, yeah. yeah. <laughs> um, okay, so generally speaking, then, I came away from looking at the survey fair, feeling fairly positive, but feeling we haven't moved on sufficiently in terms of principles 11 and 17 and the cover and deal. Um, it's probably been a little unfair. What's your perception on how the code's evolved over those three years? Um, I mean, I think we'll see whether how we've moved on on those principles. I mean, we put the principles in place mm. uh, only barely three years ago. So to some extent, it's coming to the code can't continue to evolve continuously, really, because otherwise you do run into this problem about what exactly am I signing up to now with yeah. vintage of it. So we had to put something which was going to be static for a period of time. Yeah. We come back and revisit it, decide whether or not there's a need to t change, either because market practice has moved on or because, you know, not guaranteed we landed everything exactly right no, no. the first time. Uh, and so to some extent, I don't think it could evolve in between, the code itself, sorry, couldn't yeah, evolve yeah. in between times. Mark, the people's understanding of it or interpretation of it can. Yep. And um, I think it has sort of evolved in a broadly positive mm. way. Um, one thing I think is also worth mentioning along those lines is a challenge we've set for ourselves and whether we can deliver on this remains to be seen is to try and come up with some way of being able to demonstrate the you know, improvement in market functioning. So rather than yeah. just... So the survey says that a decently large number of people said it was positive, as we were saying earlier, but to see if there's some way we can come up and back that up with some broadly objective uh, evidence that it is the so uh, that that's the case, rather than either asserting it or just um, or relying on that survey evidence, including in, in some of the um, uh, key areas. I mean, yeah, anything um, that takes the emotion out of the debate would be helpful. Yeah, and also I think it also helps with the buy side adoption if you can mm. say, well. We think this is actually being beneficial. Here's some evidence to back up that claim, um, and and that may make the case a bit stronger to encourage further adoption. The other paper you issued last week, or sorry, the week before last, now when people listen to this, was on anonymous trading. Um, obviously, this has been another sort of key area where I think, as you say, the code was set down. The um, principles generally adopted, we looked around it, and then everyone sort of looks at the same point and went, what do we do in an anonymous environment? So obviously this was set up last year, the anonymous trading world group, was it set yeah. up? In, yeah. So obviously this was their first report, um, and it looked at, I guess, key areas around tags, um, use of last look, and platform rules. Is this part of the GFXC sort of maybe saying to the platforms, Okay, we've kind of worked on the sell side, the buy side, but we think there's areas where, you know, we could be a lot clearer in the platform world. I mean, that conversation happened when we were writing the code mm. uh, as to what the responsibilities of the platforms were. So that came up two or three years ago. We didn't resolve it. 
no. at the time. Uh, and it is uh, revisiting that in particularly with the increased prevalence of um, anonymous trading. So, um, but, uh, and, but it's coming also from the platforms themselves and trying to say, well, what's, what is our responsibility? So I don't think it's just coming from the market participants you know, having a go at the platforms. I think it's no. the platforms themselves saying, well, what exactly is our responsibility? What should it be in an environment where uh, there is more anonymous trading? What what should we require part of, of, the, of people who trade on our platforms? Yeah, I mean, part of the paper sort of tried to map out the benefits of anonymous trading. I mean, that strikes me as a good place to start. Where would you like to see the work go? I mean, it obviously feed into disclosures. Yeah. I mean, I think it's more about... Um, or how how anonymous should anonymous, anonymous trading yes. is anonymous, <laughs> and and but I think it is also about the responsibilities of the different participants, um, be it the platforms, liquidity providers, or yeah the end user. I mean, because obviously rule books is an interesting one. I mean, it's there's no. There's no real firm thing in the code around sort of rule books. I think it's kind of recommended that, you know, greater disclosure through rule books was in this paper. Um, I guess the uh, the other thing I would look at with, with the platforms is um, whether the group is looking at things like multiple tags. Because I know some platforms don't allow them specifically mm. and actually do. There have been instances where people have been sanctioned by a platform for having multiple tags. So I guess it's things like that that maybe you'd be interested in. Though. Yeah, I mean we're definitely looking at the usage of yeah. tags. So yeah, uh, sorry, the group is so yes, the groups uh, written their report, which is out uh, put out a couple of weeks back, <clears throat> uh, and then the a decent chunk of that group, or the, there's a working group on the three year review taking that forward, led by. Um, uh, the New York Fed and Zara Maronia, yeah. who's the who are the main or well, the lead authors of the of the report. So they're taking that forward and saying, okay, how what aspects of the code do we uh, might need changing on the back of this, or is there something you know this potential? Is there an additional material? So necessarily just looking at what's there and tweaking it. It's potentially looking at is there something else we need to we might want to add. Mm. It's quite a challenge, isn't it? Because we're trying to raise transparency of action in an anonymous environment. It's a bit of an oxymoron, isn't it, in many ways? It's like, is it a question of maybe we look at it and say, well, we need transparency at a certain time yeah. after trade? I mean, I, I know in the well, paper And, and between said, particular participants, right? Yeah. So there's transparency between... There's a transparency to the market as a whole versus transparency to the mm. particular people involved in the yeah. transaction. Because it's always going to be a challenge when you look at it in terms of, well... You know, people talk about a liquidity consumer executing across multiple channels. Well, there's no way a platform can actually turn around and monitor no. that. No. Um, I don't think there's a way anyone can monitor that unless there's a PB involved, maybe. Yeah. Um, do you find much of the conversation at GFXC meetings involves prime brokerage and its role in the, in the market? Um, yeah, I mean, in some sense that comes up as to who's... Uh, I guess like the responsibilities of a PB. Yeah, yeah exactly. Yeah. And, and who is, I mean, you know, and come to a platform side of things, you know, who are they actually seeing? Mm. 
uh, are they seeing, uh, you know, are they seeing all the, you know, just the PB? Yeah. Or are they seeing the end client or, or not? So, um, yeah, I mean, we do, well, we do, the code does talk about yeah. prime brokers, so. And the complexities of a PB dealing with a PB. Yeah. In an anonymous environment. Yeah. That's a lot of layers to get through. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> okay. I mean, overall then, I mean, you've been in the chair now for just over six months. Oh, yeah. Um, having had your brief spell away. I was, I was actually going to ask you whether you hate the foreign exchange market because it's giving you a lot more work after no. benchmarks, after the code, after yeah. reviews and so on. Um, I mean, what's your feeling six months into the um, chairship of the GFXC in terms of how things have evolved? Um, I think they're generally involved in a positive way. I think the visibility of the code is continuing and that's what the survey results uh, indicate. But there are challenges out there. Um, We've got to make sure that people still see the value in the code. And that's one of the things I think one of the challenges we set ourselves to try and demonstrate that more than just through asking people. So yeah. can, I'm not saying we're going to be, I think that is a challenge whether we yeah. can deliver on that. Yeah. Uh, but um, I, I think there's a reasonable amount of goodwill. There's a decent uh, towards the code, not universal by any means. Um, but it encourages me that, you know, with the FCA, FCA more formally yeah. recognising the code, it's part of the senior manager's regime. That's a positive step given the um, significance of London in the global FX market. Um, so, you know, the, on the securities regulator side of things, including here in Australia, there's a recognition that the code is beneficial and, and yeah. helpful. Um, so I think the direction of travel has been um, positive. Uh, I think we need to just make sure that, that there is sufficient momentum still and particular that it doesn't just, oh, well, you know, that was, you know, the problem from three years ago, done that, moved on. So it's got to make sure we continue to demonstrate the relevance and the need basically for the code to be out there. Uh, to ensure that the FX market continues uh, to function appropriately and acts as a sufficient bulwark that we don't get uh, other issues which lead to regulatory intervention, which will mm. not necessarily uh, maintain the functionality of the market. And in many ways, that probably needs reiterating, doesn't it, to the market about what the code's function is. It's, it is actually a protective mechanism yep. as much as a set of principles. Yes. You know, it's, um, if it if it does go wrong, there's there's nowhere else to go but regulatory. Yeah, black letter regulation. Yes, and yeah, I won't go. I won't go into my views on that one. Yeah. <laughs> and how well that works. Um, okay, uh, Guy, Matt, thank you very much for uh, joining us on in the thick of it. We'll be back next week. Thanks very much for listening. Have a good week.